This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Twenty Years After by Alexander Dumas. Chapter 1 The Shade of Cardinal Richelieu. In a splendid chamber of the Palais Royal, formerly styled the Palais Cardinal, a man was sitting in deep reverie his head supported on his hands leaning over a gilt and inlaid table which was covered with letters and papers behind this figure glowed a vast fireplace alive with leaping flames great logs of oak blazed and crackled on the polished brass andirons whose flicker shone upon the superb habiliments of the lonely tenant of the room which was illumined grandly by twin candelabra rich with wax-lights any one who happened at that moment to contemplate that red simar the gorgeous robe of office and the rich lace or who gazed on that pale brow bent in anxious meditation might in the solitude of that apartment combined with the silence of the antechambers and the measured paces of the guards upon the landing-place have fancied that the shade of cardinal richelieu lingered still in his accustomed haunt it was alas the ghost of former greatness france enfeebled the authority of her sovereign contemned her nobles returning to their former turbulence and insolence her enemies within her frontiers all proved the great richelieu no longer in existence in truth that the red simar which occupied the wonted place was his no longer was still more strikingly obvious from the isolation which seemed as we have observed more appropriate to a phantom than a living creature from the corridors deserted by courtiers and courts crowded with guards from that spirit of bitter ridicule which arising from the streets below penetrated through the very casements of the room which resounded with the murmurs of a whole city leagued against the minister as well as from the distant and incessant sounds of guns firing let off happily without other end or aim except to show to the guards the swiss troops and the military who surrounded the palais royal that the people were possessed of arms the shade of richelieu was mazarin now mazarin alone was defenceless as he well knew foreigner he ejaculated italian that is their mean yet mighty byword of reproach the watchword with which they assassinated hanged and made away with consini and if i gave them their way they would assassinate hang and make away with me in the same manner although they have nothing to complain of except a tax or two now and then idiots ignorant of their real enemies they do not perceive that it is not thy italians who speaks french badly but those who can say fine things to them in the purest Parisian accent, who are their real foes. Yes, yes, Mazarin continued, whilst his wonted smile, full of subtlety, lent a strange expression to his pale lips. Yes, these noises prove to me, indeed, that the destiny of favourites is precarious. But ye shall know I am no ordinary favourite. No, the Earl of Essex, tis true, wore a splendid ring, set with diamonds, given him by his royal mistress, whilst I, I have nothing but a simple circlet of gold, with cipher on it and a date, but that ring has been blessed in the chapel of the Palais Royal, so they will never ruin me, as they long to do, 
and whilst they shout, Down with Mazarin, I unknown, and unperceived by them, incite them to cry out, Long live the Duke of Beaufort! One day, another, Long live the Prince de Condé! And again, Long live the Parliament! And at this word, the smile on the cardinal's lips assumed an expression of hatred, of which his mild countenance seemed incapable. The Parliament, we shall soon see how to dispose, he continued, of the Parliament. Both Orleans and Montargis are ours. It will be a work of time, but those who have begun by crying out, Down with Mazarin, will finish by shouting out, Down with all the people I have mentioned, each in his turn. Note. It is said that Mazarin, who, though a cardinal, had not taken such vows as to prevent it, was secretly married to Anne of Austria. Laporte's Memoirs Richelieu, whom they hated during his lifetime, and whom they now praise after his death, was even less popular than I am. Often he was driven away, oftener still he had a dread of being sent away. The Queen will never banish me, and even were I obliged to yield to the populace, she would yield with me. If I fly, she will fly, and then we shall see how the rebels will get on without either king or queen. Oh, were I not a foreigner, were I but a Frenchman, were I but of gentle birth! The position of the cardinal was indeed critical, and recent events had added to his difficulties. Discontent had long pervaded the lower ranks of society in France, crushed and impoverished by taxation, imposed by Mazarin, whose avarice impelled him to grind them down to the very dust. The people, as the advocate-general Talon described it, had nothing left to them except their souls, and as those could not be sold by auction, they began to murmur. Patience had in vain been recommended to them by reports of brilliant victories gained by France. Laurels, however, were not meat and drink, and the people had for some time been in a state of discontent. Had this been all, it might not, perhaps, have greatly signified, for when the lower classes alone complained, the court of France, separated as it was from the poor by the intervening classes of the gentry and the bourgeoisie, seldom listened to their voice. But unluckily Mazarin had had the imprudence to attack the magistrates, and had sold no less than twelve appointments in the courts of request, at a high price, and as the officers of that court paid very dearly for their places, and as the addition of twelve new colleagues would necessarily lower the value of each place, the old functionaries formed a union amongst themselves, and, enraged, swore on the Bible not to allow of this addition to their number, but to resist all the persecutions which might ensue, and should any one of them chance to forfeit his post by this resistance, to combine to indemnify him for his loss. Now the following occurrences had taken place between the two contending parties. On the 7th of January, between seven and eight hundred tradesmen had assembled in Paris to discuss a new tax which was to be levied on house property. They debuted ten of their number to wait upon the Duke of Orleans, who, according to his custom, affected popularity. The Duke received them, and they informed him that they were resolved not to pay this tax, even if they were obliged to defend themselves against its collectors by force of arms. 
They were listened to with great politeness by the duke, who held out hopes of easier measures, promised to speak in their behalf to the queen, and dismissed them with the ordinary expression of royalty. We will see what we can do. Two days afterward, these same magistrates appeared before the cardinal, and their spokesman addressed Mazarin with so much fearlessness and determination that the minister was astounded and sent the deputation away with the same answer as it had received from the Duke of Orleans, that he would see what could be done. And in accordance with that intention, a council of state was assembled, and the superintendent of finance was summoned. This man, named Emery, was the object of popular detestation, in the first place because he was superintendent of finance, and every superintendent of finance deserved to be hated, in the second place because he rather deserved the odium which he had incurred. He was the son of a banker at Lyon, named Particelli, who after becoming a bankrupt chose to change his name to Emery, and Cardinal Richelieu, having discovered in him great financial aptitude, had introduced him with a strong recommendation to Louis the Thirteenth, under his assumed name, in order that he might be appointed to the post he subsequently held. "'You surprise me!' exclaimed the monarch. "'I am rejoiced to hear you speak of Monsieur d'Emery, as calculated for a post which requires a man of probity.' I was really afraid that you were going to force that villain Particelli upon me. Sire, replied Richelieu, rest assured that Particelli, the man to whom your majesty refers, has been hanged. Ah, so much better, exclaimed the king. It is not for nothing that I am styled Louis the Just. And he signed Emery's appointment. This was the same Emery who became eventually superintendent of finance. He was sent for by the ministers, and he came before them, pale and trembling, declaring that his son had nearly been assassinated the day before, near the palace. The mob had insulted him on account of the ostentatious luxury of his wife, whose house was hung with red velvet, edged with gold fringe. This lady was the daughter of Nicolas du Camas, who arrived in Paris with twenty francs in his pocket became secretary of state, and accumulated wealth enough to divide nine millions of francs among his children, and to keep an income of forty thousand for himself. The fact was that Emery's son had run a great chance of being suffocated, one of the rioters having proposed to squeeze him until he had gave up all the gold he had swallowed. Nothing, therefore, was settled that day, as Emery's head was not steady enough for business after such an occurrence. On the next day, Matthew Mole, the chief president, whose courage at this crisis, says the Cardinal de Retz, was equal to that of the Duc de Beaufort and the Prince de Condé, in other words, of the two men who were considered the bravest in France, had been attacked in his turn. The people threatened to hold him responsible for the evils that hung over them, but the chief president had replied with his habitual coolness, without betraying either disturbance or surprise, that should the agitators refuse obedience to the king's wishes, he would have gallows erected in the public squares, and proceed at once to hang the most active among them, to which the others had responded that they would be glad to see the gallows erected, 
they would serve for the hanging of those detestable judges who purchased favour at the court at the price of the people's misery. Nor was this all. On the eleventh, the Queen, in going to Mass at Notre-Dame, as she always did on Saturdays, was followed by more than two hundred women demanding justice. These poor creatures had no bad intentions. They wished only to be allowed to fall on their knees before their sovereign, and that they might move her to compassion. But they were prevented by the royal guard, and the Queen proceeded on her way, haughtily disdainful of their entreaties. At length Parliament was convoked. The authority of the King was to be maintained. One day, it was the morning of the day my story begins, the King, Louis the Fourteenth, then ten years of age, went in state under pretext of returning thanks for his recovery from the smallpox to Notre Dame. He took the opportunity of calling out his guard, the Swiss troops and the musketeers, and he had planted them around the Palais Royal, on the quays, and on Pont Neuf. After Mass, the young monarch drove to the Parliament House, where, upon the throne, he hastily confirmed not only such edicts as he had already passed, but issued new ones, each one, according to Cardinal de Retz, more ruinous than the others, a proceeding which drew forth a strong remonstrance from the chief president, Mole, while President Blanc-Masnel and Councillor Brossal raised their voices in indignation against fresh taxes. The king returned amidst the silence of a vast multitude to the Palais Royal. All minds were uneasy, most were foreboding, many of the people used threatening language. At first, indeed, they were doubtful whether the king's visit to the Parliament had been in order to lighten or increase their burdens, but scarcely was it known that the taxes were to be still further increased when cries of down with Mazarin, long live Brussels, long live Blancmesnil, resounded through the city, for the people had learned that Bruxelles and Blancmesnil had made speeches on their behalf, and although the eloquence of these deputies had been without avail, it had none the less won for them the people's good will. All attempts to disperse the groups collected in the streets, or silence their exclamations, were in vain. Orders had just been given to the royal guards and the Swiss guards not only to stand firm, but to send out patrols to the streets of St. Denis and St. Martin, where the people thronged and where they were the most vociferous, when the mayor of Paris was announced at the Palais Royal. He was shown in directly. He came to say that if these offensive precautions were not discontinued, in two hours Paris would be under arms. Deliberations were being held when a lieutenant in the guards, named Cummings, made his appearance, with his clothes all torn, his face streaming with blood. The Queen, on seeing him, uttered a cry of surprise, and asked him what was going on. As the mayor had foreseen, the sight of the guards had exasperated the mob. The Tucson was surrounded. Cummings had arrested one of the ringleaders, and had ordered him to be hanged near the cross of... But in attempting to execute this command, the soldiery were attacked in the market-place with stones and halberds. The delinquent had escaped to the Rue de Lombards, and rushed into a house. They broke open the doors and searched the dwelling, but in vain. Cominge, wounded by a stone which had struck him on the forehead, had left a picket in the street, and returned to the Palais Royal, 
followed by a menacing crowd, to tell his story. This account confirmed that of the mayor. The authorities were not in a condition to cope with serious revolt. Mazarin endeavoured to circulate among the people a report that troops had only been stationed on the quays and on the Pont Neuf, on account of the ceremonial of the day, and that they would soon withdraw. In fact, about four o'clock, they were all concentrated about the Palais Royal, the courts and the ground floors of which were filled with musketeers and Swiss guards, and there awaited the outcome of all this disturbance. Such was the state of affairs at the very moment we introduced our readers to the study of Cardinal Mazarin, once that of Cardinal Richelieu. We have seen in what state of mind he listened to the murmurs from below, which even reached him in his seclusion, and to the guns, the firing of which resounded through that room. All at once he raised his head, his brow slightly contracted, like that of a man who has formed a resolution. He fixed his eyes upon an enormous clock that was about to strike ten, and taking up a whistle of silver gilt that stood upon the table near him, he shrilled it twice. A door hidden in the tapestry opened noiselessly, and a man in black silently advanced and stood behind the chair on which Mazarin sat. Bernouin, said the cardinal, not turning around, for having whistled, he knew that it was his valet de chambre who was behind him. What musketeers are now within the palace? The black musketeers, my lord. What company? Treville's company. Is there any officer belonging to this company in the antechamber? Lieutenant d'Artagnan. A man on whom we can depend, I hope. Yes, my lord. Give me a uniform of one of these musketeers, and help me to put it on. The valet went out as silently as he had entered, and appeared in a few minutes, bringing the dress demanded. The cardinal, in deep thought and in silence, began to take off the robes of state he had assumed in order to be present at the sitting of Parliament, and to attire himself in the military coat, which he wore with a certain degree of easy grace owing to his former campaigns in Italy. When he was completely dressed, he said, "'Send hither, Monsieur d'Artagnan.' The valet went out of the room, this time by the centre door, but still as silently as before. One might have fancied him an apparition. When he was left alone, the cardinal looked at himself in the glass with a feeling of self-satisfaction. Still young, for he was scarcely forty-six years of age, he possessed great elegance of form, and was above the middle height. His complexion was brilliant and beautiful, his glance full of expression. His nose, though large, was well proportioned, his forehead broad and majestic, his hair, of a chestnut colour, was curled slightly, his beard, which was darker than his hair, was turned carefully with a curling iron, a practice that greatly improved it. After a short time the cardinal arranged his shoulder-belt, then looked with great complacency at his hands, which were most elegant and of which he took the greatest care, and throwing on one side the large kid gloves tried on at first, as belonging to the uniform, he put on others of silk only. At this instant the door opened. "'Monsieur d'Artagnan,' said the valet de Tambre. An officer, as he spoke, entered the apartment. He was a man between thirty-nine and forty years of age, of medium height, 
but a very well-proportioned figure, with an intellectual and animated physiognomy, his black beard and his hair turning grey, as often happens when people have found life either too gay or too sad, more especially when they happen to be of swart complexion. D'Artagnan advanced a few steps into the apartment. How perfectly he remembered his former entrance into that very room! Seeing, however, no one there except a musketeer of his own troop, he fixed his eyes upon the supposed soldier, in whose dress, nevertheless, he recognized at the first glance the cardinal. The lieutenant remained standing in a dignified but respectful posture, such as became a man of good birth, who had, in the course of his life, been frequently in the society of the highest nobles. The cardinal looked at him with a cunning rather than serious glance, yet he examined his countenance with attention, and after a momentary silence said, "'You are Monsieur d'Artagnan?' "'I am that individual,' replied the officer. Mazarin gazed once more at the countenance, full of intelligence, the play of which had been, nevertheless, subdued by age and experience, and d'Artagnan received the penetrating glance like one who had formerly sustained many a searching look, very different indeed from those which were inquiringly directed on him at that instant. "'Sir,' resumed the cardinal, "'you are to come with me, or rather I am to go with you.' "'I am at your command, my lord,' returned d'Artagnan. "'I wish to visit in person the outposts which surround the Palais Royal. Do you suppose there is any danger in so doing?' "'Danger, my lord!' exclaimed D'Artagnan, with a look of astonishment. "'What danger?' "'I am told there is a general insurrection.' "'The uniform of the king's musketeers carries a certain respect with it, and even if it were not the case, I would engage with four of my men to put to flight a hundred of these clowns. "'Did you witness the injury sustained by Cummings?' "'Monsieur de Cummings is in the guards and not in the musketeers.' "'Which means, I suppose, that the musketeers are better soldiers than the guards?' The cardinal smiled as he spoke. "'Everyone likes his own uniform best, my lord.' "'Myself accepted,' and again Mazarin smiled. "'For you perceive that I have left off mine and put on yours.' "'Lord, bless us, this is modesty indeed,' cried D'Artagnan. "'Had I such a uniform as your eminence possesses, I protest I should be mightily content.' and I would take an oath never to wear any other costume. Yes, but for to-night's adventure, I don't suppose my dress would have been a very safe one. Give me my felt hat, Bernouin. The valet instantly brought to his master a regimental hat with a wide brim. The cardinal put it on in military style. Your horses are ready saddled in their stables, are they not? he said, turning to D'Artagnan. Yes, my lord. Well, let us set out. How many men does your eminent wish to escort you? You say that with four men you will undertake to disperse a hundred low fellows. As it may happen that we shall have to encounter two hundred, take eight. As many as my lord wishes. I will follow you. This way. Light us downstairs, Bernouin. The valet held a wax light. The cardinal took a key from his bureau, and opening the door of a secret stair, descended into the court of the Palais Royal. End of chapter 1